From Share Profits, brought to you from Wales by 30 Yards, this is episode 6 of the Share Profits radio show for Wednesday, 21st of August, 2019. And here's your host, Tom Winifrith. Hi, this is indeed Tom Winifrith, and indeed I am coming to you from Wales by just 30 yards. It's delightful to be back in the Principality. I spent quite a bit of time this week uh, looking at the world of mattresses. Uh, I was inspired to do this by events happening in Australia. Uh, There is a radio show host there who seems like a frightfully good bloke called Alan Jones. He's outspoken uh, and he's not exactly politically correct. Uh, Anyhow, he seems to be in a spot of hot water. Uh, His crime is to challenge the uh, given, the media given, that climate change is a settled science. I'll explain how this uh, affects the world of mattresses shortly. Uh, The Prime Minister of New Zealand, the pious virtue-signalling Jacinda Ardern, uh, made some comments criticising Australia's failure to completely train wreck its economy to tackle the bogus religion of climate change. Uh, Mr Jones commented that uh, she should put a sock in it, or rather the Australian Prime Minister should stick a sock down her throat, basically that she should shut up. His metaphor was perhaps a slightly ugly one, but his point was to say that she was talking nonsense, which arguably she is. Uh, I am a climate change sceptic. I note that in the North Pole, uh, the ice cap is thicker than it has been for many years. That comes as a surprise to you? Well, of course, if you read the BBC, you you watch the BBC or read The Guardian or the rest of the uh, uh, liberal media, you will have images of polar bears floating on melting ice caps uh, up the Thames. No, uh, the North Pole is getting thicker and thicker because the world is now in a cooling cycle. All of the models, all of the computer models on which the current bogus religion is based, which were made in the 1990s, have been wrong. Their predictions over 20 years have just been completely and utterly wrong. Uh, If they can't get the first 20 years right, uh, on what basis should we believe their 100-year forecasts? We should not. A rational person would question them and question the men behind them, men and women behind them. A rational person would look at the fact that the North Pole is getting colder and the ice is getting thicker. Uh, This summer, a Norwegian ship uh, steaming up to the North Pole to study climate change had to turn back because the ice was too thick. That wasn't reported on the BBC either. Uh, The world is actually now in a cooling cycle. Uh, This is all a bit of an inconvenient truth, but we're not allowed to debate it. Climate change is regarded as a settled science and is therefore uh, pumped into the minds of our impressionable young people as part of GCSE geography. Uh, There is no debate allowed. If in your GCSE geography paper you start writing about how the North Pole, the ice, is getting thicker, or how we're into a cooling cycle, or how all those computer models were wrong, you're going to fail. 
uh, there is only one answer, and that is to say that it is a settled science. And as part of that campaign for this bogus religion, those who dissent are stamped out. Uh, Mr. Jones uh, is now being attempted to be stamped out. One of those taking part in that campaign was an Australian firm, Koala, which makes mattresses. And it's not only withdrew its advertising from uh, Mr. Jones's radio show, citing his views on climate change, uh, but saying that his views were so unacceptable, it called on the radio station to sack him. Uh, Koala clearly doesn't believe in free speech or debate uh, on this issue. It wants just one viewpoint to be heard. Uh, now, why does this matter? Well, those of us who believe in free speech think it matters. Uh, those of us who regard climate change as not settled science and think there are very real issues think it matters. Uh, but there's also here an issue of corporate virtue signaling. Now, I don't care if corporates want to spend their money sponsoring gay pride parade or uh, showing how virtuous they are by demanding that radio hosts get sacked. But I often think it's rather an unwise move for them to do so. Uh, they are spending shareholders' money, uh, not the money of the people running the corporates, uh, on these campaigns. Uh, is it necessarily going to be one uh, that will reward shareholders? Uh, in the case of Mr. Jones, uh, what happens when we have uh, two or three cold winters and people really start to question uh, the emperor's new clothes of climate change? Will people really thank Koala uh, for por forcing a poor old man into unemployment uh, in pursuit of a cause which may or may not be correct? I suspect they won't. Uh, the problem tends to be that big corporates have a department com uh, committed to corporate and social responsibility staffed by the same sort of metropolitan elite who talk to journalists, who talk to the political class, and who are wholly divorced from the needs and the views of many ordinary folks. Their worldview is at odds with large sections of the population. We have seen a number of companies engaged in such wholesale virtue signaling. Uh, Gillette is a recent one and faced a very real backlash from ordinary consumers who do not share the view of those making the decisions. It is something companies, I think, should think a little bit more carefully about. There is sponsoring gay pride parade. These sort of things are pretty harmless. But when you make a really strident uh, and very strong statement where you're actually seeking to punish your opponents using your corporate might, there could indeed be a backlash. It seems to me to be bad business, as well as, in this case, being undesirable on a number of levels. The other interesting point in my research on the world of mattresses, and you may say this shows me to be a complete and utter geek, is just how many mattresses are out there. I made this point in my Bearcast uh, a couple of days ago. There is an enormous choice of mattresses. Mattresses of all sizes, conventional ones, ones that help your back, ones that are soft, ones that are hard, ones that you can deliver in a box and arrive at your door. There are numerous brands in all segments of the market. Creating brand awareness to allow you to be even partially dominant costs an absolute fortune. 
I think of uh, from my 20s, the Silent Night brand, the adverts with the hippo and the sweet little duck sitting on a bed. That must Was it Silent Night or was it someone else? So you see, the brand, the, the memories fade after these years, but at the time it became a, a pretty big brand. But that cost an absolute fortune. There is a company on, e, on AIM, Eve Sleep, uh, backed by Neil Woodford, uh, which has tried to revolutionise the world of mattresses. Uh, it is now engaged in merger talks, rather a rescue takeover, uh, for Eve is almost at the knacker's yard with Simba, a company backed by my friend Nigel Ray, which also seems to be doing pretty badly. The point about both these companies is that they had the enormous arrogance to believe that they could somehow disrupt and enter, go into a market and gain real market share just because they had a product that was marginally different. I remember the world of VHS and Betamax. It's not necessarily that your product is marginally different or marginally better uh, actually, Betamax was probably better than VHS. If you're a younger reader, you, listener, you'll have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm talking about videos, uh, uh, what we used to have uh, before we put uh, uh, little discs to play things into our television. Uh, but the point here was that VHS won the market simply uh, on the back of marketing push, not necessarily because it was a better product. How then, uh, and that was a market of two players, well, I think there was a third, I can't quite remember. In the case of mattresses, there are hundreds of players. Uh, the arrogance of uh, some folk believing that they can enter a market with hundreds of established players and actually create enough brand awareness to succeed and create a business of critical mass uh, knows no ends. I am surprised that my friend Nigel Ray has backed Simba. Uh, I think he will end up losing his money, but probably not before Neil Woodford has lost more of other people's money on Eve Group. You're just not going to disrupt a market like that uh, when there are so many players, when it's so fractured, and when you're up against people with far greater power, firepower in the world of creating or maintaining brand awareness. Uh, this podcast is, as you know, uh, one that is sponsored by Riverfork Global Capital, which is the leading provider of funding to junior listed companies. It can provide uh, short to medium term loans, asset backed loans, convertible debt, royalty and equity financings. Uh, people parody uh, Riverfork as being a provider of death spirals. That's not uh, what they do. Uh, and in the alternative financing class, I believe very firmly that Riverfort is best of breed, which is why I'm delighted to be working in partnership with them on this podcast. If you are the CEO or FD of a junior listed company which has financing issues, I suggest that you contact info at riverfortcapital.com to arrange a one-to-one -one meeting and they'd be delighted to speak to you. Please mention where you heard about it and where you got this endorsement. Now, enough prattling from me. I have two very interesting guests on this program. And if I say so myself, I also tell a couple, or more than a couple, quite a lot of rather good jokes. Sit back and enjoy. My first guest today is, I never can pronounce his name in full, Harry Agnostorus Adams. I'm sure I've got that completely wrong. Who is the executive chairman at Kefi Minerals. 
I make the declaration that I am a shareholder in Kefi uh, because I do believe in its Tulu Kapi project in Ethiopia. It hasn't done me much in terms of bringing forward my early retirement. I guess you're going to have many more years of these podcasts uh, because it's not been a great investment of late. Harry, um, for us long-suffering shareholders, uh, the stock was about 5p a year ago. It's now, point, as I see today, 0.844p in the middle. Market cap just over 5 million quid. Has everything gone incredibly wrong? So, could you just ask, what was the final line? I didn't quite catch it. Uh, the, the shares were 5p. They're now 0.844p. The market cap is only 5.5 million quid. Has something gone completely wrong? Well, if you're asking whether on the ground things are, are still heading for closing by the end of September of the local equity, yes, they are. If you're asking whether the country has, um, how would I put it, uh, been unstable and thrown us off track over the last year, yes, it has. Um, so the short answer is yes, there have been very big challenges in Ethiopia over the last year, but on the other hand, things are on track for closing. Well, uh, okay, you'll forgive my cynicism on this, but uh, uh, we've been told this for quite some time. I think we were told, what was it, uh, a year ago, you told us that funding was secured, if not uh, sort of the Elon Musk tweet. Uh, it, funding isn't secured, yes, is it? Um, it was the construction of Tulu Capi. Yeah, in, in terms of the project equity, we have binding commitments for $58 million put into the project, both partly from the government at $20 million and partly from local investors at $38 million. They're binding commitments. What has happened over the last year is that the country's gone into uh, what I would call a complete overhaul or transformation. And uh, most recently, they asked for independent security sign-offs uh, independent assessments of security and community readiness for uh, resettlement before funds would flow. So I know you'd like a one-line answer, Tom, but yes, they are committed, uh, but they had the right to call uh, for a review of security under a situation where there was uh, quite a lot of instability in the country, including a, a mini-coup and other publicised events. So in my view, uh, not unreasonable demands or requests from partners in Ethiopia uh, who are putting in money at many multiples of what the stock market valuation is of the company. So I don't think unreasonable. However, yes, caused uh, delays and caused disappointments to, um, you know, to the Kefi shareholders. Uh, and in terms of actually, okay, so sorting out the security situation, uh, it does strike me that uh, Ethiopia is, is is the sort of place you'd send the mother-in-law on holiday. Um, it, it's uh, uh, is it really a stable place to do business? Um, well, how would I summarise it in terms of is it a high-growth country? It's the highest growth in Africa, and it's been in the top ten in the world for nearly twenty years. Is it uh, a country which has an experienced mining industry and jurist, you know, regulations. No, we actually the first modern mine development in decades. So a lot of learning taking place. Uh, a lot of things we're doing that are being done 
by the administration for the first time. Um, is it a place where I would feel comfortable my children working? Yes, because uh, one of my children worked there for five years. Um, is it a place where one has to take security precautions? Yes, uh, because there are troubles in the country and one doesn't walk around uh, unprepared or ill-prepared. Uh, is it above average safety for Africa or below average? Uh, in my opinion, it's above average, and that's the sort of independent assessments we've received in the past. One might say it's a fairly low bar average, isn't it? Uh, well, if you're talking, uh, are mining companies prepared, should they be prepared to go to countries which have security issues? I think the facts speak for themselves. There's over 200 Australian mining companies in Africa because of the potential. But you have to be very guarded and very careful. Um, you know, perhaps that's disappointing when things get slowed down because of it. But the, the, sim the simple fact of management is unfortunately, or fortunately, I mean, it's, it's a necessity and it's fortunate that safety comes first. And so no one is scared of proceeding in, in Ethiopia but everyone is mindful of the need to do it extremely cautiously. You seem to be saying that it's a bit like visiting uh, Sadiq Khan's knife-infested London. You just have to take extra security measures. But uh, words like coup um, make, make people think that actually it's a little bit more dangerous even than Mayor Khan's London. Um, well, there is, um, it was an attempted failed coup in one state. Um, uh, not in the country, and it didn't get off the ground. So, one of the one of the factors that one deals with in Ethiopia is that it's the base for the African Union. There's over a hundred embassies there. Uh, all the world's media is there. It has probably more state visits from world leaders than London does. Um, it's really high up on the world stage of attention. And, and therefore, it gets very highly publicised, pretty well everything that goes on there. I'm not trying to downplay things, but it, it is, it, you know, if, if, if these things happened in, in some more quiet backwater of a country, uh, perhaps a lot of it would not have been reported. But I, I suspect that you and, and, and other listeners to this will have seen headlines about Ethiopia every month or two over the last year, and that's because it is on the world stage. Okay, at the AGM, you said that the updated security report would, quote, take a, uh, a few weeks. In yeah. the Q2 operational update, you said the updated independent security report has been arranged to be provided in August 2019. Yeah. Uh, we're two-thirds of the way through August now. Uh, are you still on track? Uh, well, they have been in country, and now they've left. They've done their work. Um uh, they're writing it up, basically. So it's expected by the end of August and the work has been done, yes. And uh, is it your understanding that at that point uh, you would be in a position where you'll be able to draw down funds and you will have sufficient funds to construct a mine at Tulukapi starting work in September? Not, not quite. There are two things required. Uh, one is the report on the security one is the report on the community. The community people have also, the security people have done their job, as I just said, and they're writing it up. Uh, it's a group called Con Constellis, uh, their global 
you know, international security people. Um, and there's a group that are doing the community and local government preparedness. Um, and they're, they're, they're in country. Uh, they've done half their work and the other half of their work has to be done over the next few weeks um, because it involves you know, checking that each individual householder is happy and that he's been duly informed and consulted. So that, that, that is happening. Um, and then realistically, I think that by the middle of September, that aspect will have been written up. And so we're on track for closing in September of the project equity. Um, now, also going back, you referred to the, the annual report and, and, you know, and it's also in other announcements. What we're doing is triggering the, 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 the uh, 24 month startup schedule once that project equity comes in uh, and that, that kicks it off. The first stages are the community resettlement and the um, detailed engineering and procurement. Uh, and then we draw down the, the balance of the project equity and the balance of the, uh, and the debt uh, project finance uh, when we're six months into that 24 month schedule. So what we're doing is equity funding the first six months and then the rest of the equity funding and the debt funding comes in six into six months into the 24. And so you would be confident, therefore, that by give or take a few weeks, the end of September 2021, you'll be producing gold. Yes, the the base schedule is is 24 months, but the the first gold pour um, and and sort of target schedules uh, are shorter than that. But the base schedule is for full production. Uh, this um, this time in uh, two years, yeah. Okay. Now, when you've drawn down the debt and equity, <clears throat> is there any uh, ability for the parent company, which so far appears to have subbed uh, operations in Ethiopia, to get any money back? Yes, uh, and uh, uh, I mean, that's part of it is some reimbursements and, and, and um, what do you call it, uh, direct payment of costs from then on that have up to date been borne by the parent. But I mean, I share the great disappointment with the performance of the company and the sector generally, and hopefully now it's turning based on what's going on in the world, gold prices and so on. But nevertheless, it's been very disappointing. And I'm not, I'll be the last to, to deny that. But um, I don't think it's, how would I put it? I don't want to sound like I'm brushing it off, Tom, but um, one should not understate the critical importance of a company of CAFE's size and market capitalization having project finance, $300 million at the project level. And we, to say that we've been subbing of the project uh, you know, uh, the, the project equity investors would argue that they're putting up money at prices that the stock market simply is unprepared to do. And so that it's it's a sort of, one, one should be, how do I put it, respectful also of the work that's being done and the, the weight that's being carried by those people. Now, obviously everyone wants to see it, to believe it, but they're, they're committed deals and, and they will be seen and they will be believed. Okay, I, I, I would, would, would never want anyone not to think that I'm not respectful, but uh, what I'm trying to drive at, Harry, is assuming that by late September uh, we are in a position where uh, Kefi is drawing down first the, the equity and then the debt, is 
uh, are we looking at a situation where Kefi PLC is going to receive some money back from uh, the subsidiary and therefore Kefi PLC will no longer have to issue equity itself just to keep the PLC lights on? That's correct. And only with the proviso that shareholders have approved already that some of the service providers, including some senior management, would be paid in shares in due course when we we do that cleanup of reimbursements and closing of all the project equity. So we've got some unfinished business because the senior executives, including myself, have said they're prepared to be paid in stock when that total closeout occurs rather than draw on cash from the company. So subject to that, what you just said, yes. Okay, but those in the greater scheme of things, you would hope those amounts would be relatively small. Would you be able to give an undertaking that you would not be issuing stock at the current share price? Well, insofar as one director can give that undertaking, yes, it's certainly not our intention and certainly not our expectation. And um, I don't see why we need to. Okay. Right. Now, let's move on. Okay. Now, before we go uh, uh, on to another matter, uh, there is the issue of your operations in Saudi Arabia. Um, why, when clearly Tulu Capi is the, the jewel in your crown and has required or you know, should quite rightly and has quite rightly been the uh, 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 focus of all of your attention, why have you persisted with doing business at Hawaii? I've I probably pronounced that completely wrong in Saudi Arabia. Uh, two reasons. Uh, one is um, the license there was issued towards the end of last year, and there is a an obligation of that joint venture to to do work on the license for fear of not satisfying, pardon me, its regulatory um, undertakings for retention of an expiration license. That's one reason. Um, another reason is that uh, the joint venture there is is prepared to carry the can at the risk of dilution if we need to and therefore if that's if that'll be a consequence of getting that show on the road then that's what we'll do the amounts of money that the the dilution requirement um is um, um how would i put it modest compared to the market cap of the company and therefore that, from the point of view of shareholders the potential at how we are certainly warrants the work. It is a company-making target. The expiration... Well, is a, a company-making target? Beg your pardon? Isn't Tulu Capi a company-making target? Yes, yes, it is. All, all, all I'm trying to say is that we haven't... You know, the last, uh, what is it, three years, I don't think um, any, any money other than uh, keeping the lights on of the corporate entity in, in Saudi have actually gone to Saudi. So we've poured all the effort and all the money into Tulakapi. And uh, just now, in, in the month where Tulakapi is closing its project finance, there is a demanding need to get that show on the road. And the joint, the joint venture there is a very sound, you know, strong relationship. And if, if we're prepared to dilute, which we are, uh, it'll only be a, you know, a couple of percentage points in the JV. If we do that, they're happy to carry the can and keep keep advancing because the you know the the license requires it so to speak putting aside its merits which we believe has strong merit so in short you you would 
you would rather be diluted in Saudi than mm. uh, shareholders in PLC suffer further dilution. That's the gist of it. Good. Now, can I ask you a question on Hawaii and doing business in Saudi Arabia, which I don't expect you to answer? Right. Um, many of us take the view that Saudi Arabia is the exporter of the most vile form of fundamentalist terrorism going. Uh, they provided most of the 9-11 bombers uh, and that its record on human rights with respect to women, uh, the LGBT community, execution of minors, treatment of political dissidents is possibly the most despicable in the world. Uh, its capital punishment regime uh, is per capita the most despicable in the world, beating even the Chinese. Uh, how do you feel morally doing business in such a country? Well, I suppose there's two limbs to that answer. Uh, one well, is... Maybe they probably chopped one of them off. What <laughs> <coughs> uh, uh, I suppose is most pressing on my mind is does one... Does one engage or one does not engage? That's the first point. And my personal disposition is to engage. Secondly, is the country changing before one's eyes, uh, addressing all the issues that you're referring to? Yes. I've it's moved visited... from the 13th century to the 14th. Sorry? It's moved from the 13th century to the 14th. Yeah, well, I'll let, I'll let you sort of judge that. But what I can say is that... Uh, <laughs> I go there every three or four months, and uh, what I see is quite rapid transformation. The people we deal with are international people, albeit a Saudi family. They're uh, active in London, Paris, New York, other countries, other cities. Um, and, about the Bin Ladens, by the way, but carry on. <laughs> and uh, they, uh, they're convinced, and from what I see with my eyes, I'm convinced that the country is rapidly and radically transforming itself from means from the inside and um yeah it, it might be too slow for you it might be too slow for people in my own family who ask me the same questions but what i see is rapid transformation what i see is a for the better what i see is a pole position in the mining sector uh which is a potential wealth creator for very uh, limited exposure um uh, in the build-up on that on that front. Okay, let's return to Tulukapi and the maths of the project. Uh, assuming that all of the financing gets uh, uh, provided uh, as uh, is currently envisaged, and, we, and work starts at the end of September or early October, um, what remind me? What is your diluted stake now? What is your stake in the project? What's the PLC stake in the project? Um, beneficial interest, if you melt the whole thing right down, is around 45%. Okay. Uh, what is the anticipated production, uh, rate of production in terms of ounces of gold in 24, 26 months' time? Uh, about 150,000 ounces per annum. So um, we'd have 45% uh, of that, if you like, in a beneficial interest sense. And the life of mine? Uh, the bankable reserves are eight years. Um, the, the resources underground uh, are beyond that, but bankable is eight years. And uh, what's the uh, uh, all-in cash cost of extraction? Uh, production costs, uh, all-in sustained costs, uh, $800. Uh, 
uh, including financing and repayments of financing, um, $1,000. Okay. Are you fairly confident? Uh, well, the gold price uh, last time I looked, we're, we're, we're heading the right way. Uh, where do you see the gold price being over the next five, ten years? Or is that a stupid question? Because we're bound to get it wrong, both of us. Well, we will get it wrong, but um, I've always had the view that $1,300 was a good base case with more risk on the upside than the downside. Um, and uh, that's it, the gold price has spent, uh, uh, when, it, when, it, when it dropped from its peak in 2011, um, it sort of bounced, bounced to 1,200 and held that, that sort of 1,200 baseline. Uh, 1,200 to 1,400 was its range of behaviour for the last, uh, whatever it is, eight years. And it's been in that band for about 90% of the time. So I think $1,300 is a, is a safe bet. If you ask me what's a sort of a, an owner's bet, not something that you mortgage on, but a, but a reasonable uh, you know, best guess, uh, based on what I know, uh, I, I would I would venture to say in the fourteen hundred range, and I think it'll you know it'll it'll spike and trough around that. Um, that's that's what I think. So I, I think our numbers our numbers have usually I think in the last few years have been based on thirteen hundred dollar base case, and I think that's not an unreasonable basis to continue to do it. Um, and the the diluted NPV of the bankable stuff, ignoring the underground and anything else in the company, um, puts, um, puts around 10p on it, uh, on, on the stock as it is. And if you wanted to put $1,500 in there to say that Harry's sort of being a bit conservative on that, if you felt that, if you put in today's share price, it would be about 18p. Uh, so 10 to 20p based on the bankable um as a step look at it another way if you were doing a 300 dollar cash margin on a net uh oh it's not forty-five thousand, is it it's one and a half times that a net seventy thousand ounces you'd be talking about 21 million dollars uh free cash flow per annum yeah yeah of that order yeah um okay that's, that's my rough rough winnie math so uh, I, I think it's more reliable than lenny maths but maybe you just tweak that number uh is isn't one of the problems with mining juniors or the way that people perceive them, Harry, and you've been in this game, uh, uh, sorry to say it, quite a long time, is that people can look at these net present values and they can look at that, but they never really believe it until you're actually in production and, and showing that you're generating cash. Well, how would I put it? Um... I don't claim to be some guru with a crystal ball. If I was, I wouldn't have put my money in uh, the price I did. Um, I think the simple fact of the matter is that uh, the juniors have underperformed since 2011. Uh, they're off 90% plus as a sector, and the micro caps like Kefi, even worse. And um, and in London, where it's not really a mining market, it's it's sort of an unusual little subsector. Unlike, say, in Canada, Australia, it can feel even lonelier and even worse. Um, I think your comment's a fair comment, but does does a mining specialist investor feel that same way? No. Um, 
a mining specialist investor for the last, uh, well, during this bear market, which hopefully is now turning, um, or at least there's early signs that maybe it is. Um, a mining specialist investor, by and large, they've said, the institutions have said we're out of it until the cycle turns. And the specialist mining funds have said, we'll do it private. We're not interested in stock market exposure and shares that go up and down every day. So by and large, they're either out of it, they've been out of it, or done privately. Now, that doesn't mean to say, um, you know, they, they've got it right. It just means to say they don't have a share price. It goes up and down every day. They just don't want to be involved in the, in the stock market during that part of the cycle, those particular parties. And that's the majority of the heavy money in the mining sector. We've Which, in terms of the cycle turning, uh, we've had gold on a, you know, we've had actually quite a few months of gold going up. It's yeah. not helped Kefi or indeed quite a lot of the mining juniors. When, yeah. do, you think, when do you think the trickle down, uh, the, the sentiment or the change in fundamentals trickles down to your share price? Well, uh, I'm getting asked that question already by institutional investors at the project level in Ethiopia. They're staring at the stock market of, and they say, what are we missing? Why, don't, why doesn't London believe in what we're investing in? They're asking me that question already, and the project finances likewise. And I suppose my, you know, the only answer I can give them is that when, when the stock market in London, which is effectively dominated by by relatively small investors and not mining specialist investors, when they see the evidence that the deals are closing in Ethiopia and that Ethiopia is getting on with the show, then the stock market will follow and it'll be self-fulfilling. But I'm being asked those questions by, by Ethiopian investors because they're, they're, they're sort of dumbstruck rather at the stock market capitalization of the parent company. So uh, I, I think the short answer is when the deals close in Ethiopia, Tom. Okay. Well, now let's let's ask two questions. I've had I invited some of my uh, listeners to answer, uh, pitching with a few questions, and I've already asked a few of them. But there's a couple of uh, 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 things which uh, might explain why some private investors in London are not rushing to buy the shares. Uh, the first is uh, looking at the 2018 remuneration report for Kefi. Uh, a, it's not terribly transparent. There's no uh, explicit breakdown of the fees which you and the finance director draw as individuals. Um, and, and I would suggest when you come to 2019, you should break it down, Harry, uh, uh, explicitly. But from what I can see, uh, between you, you and the finance director were taking about out about quarter of a million quid last year and a little bit more the year before. In light of the, the share price performance and the fact that investors have lost a lot of money, do you not think that's an excessive salary? Well, speaking specifically about myself, um, I founded the company in 2006. Uh, between then and 2014, I didn't get $1 or one pound of a fee as non-executive chairman. Uh, then so you're, being paid, you're being paid. You're being paid well by EMED during that period, Harry. Yeah. Um, so, but EMED wasn't being paid, or I wasn't being. Nobody was being paid by Kefi. We didn't take any money out of it. No, no you were, you yourself were drawing a a, 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 a very respectable salary from EMED. Uh, yeah. Since that period, 
uh, uh, so I think that's 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 a little bit of a distraction. Emed was 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 um, involved yeah. since 2014. You have been taking out what what many of us might seem to think is quite a large salary relative to. And now I always give this example, and people always laugh at me. But what a nurse earns on the NHS? You're being paid ten nurses. Yeah, well, I don't really want to talk about nurses and the relative pay of nurses versus CEOs, but all I can say is that uh, my salary uh, is what uh, I asked for. I get put up for re-election every two years, and I've invested more in the shares of the company than I've received from the company. So, um, you know, I, I personally feel no discomfort or embarrassment at the fact that I've invested more than I've been paid. It's the same salary I've been earning probably for 25 years, uh, no more, no less, um, within five or ten percent. And um, I mean, that, that's as simple as it is. Uh, I've, I've lost a bundle of money on the shares, and uh, I have invested more in the shares than I've been paid by the company. Um, that's, that's, okay. that's, that's I'll, I'll accept that answer. We'll just move on now. Uh, there's been another incident of late, which is uh, the, uh, uh, shall we call it a, 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 you said a convertible loan facility. Some people might use um, uh, words beginning with D and S, uh, which you signed up to. Who is the lending facility with? Well, Tom, as you know, they they are um, under three percent that I need to be disclosed, and the NOMAD thought likewise. So it's not for me to disclose them. They're a lender, and if they go over three percent, they need to be disclosed. The second point I'd make is that um, there was a competition between three such lenders, and I am bound by confidentiality. And I and I have to say, I was pretty annoyed that one of the, the, the companies that lost out on that little competition um, obviously chewed your ear and have you had you say things negative about the deal. And uh, I, I, I was... Barry, you're, you know, you've known me too long to say that I will not disclose my sources. So you may say that. I couldn't possibly comment. Uh, I think the uh, I don't know who was the losing parties in the deal. Uh, I talked to many people. We can discuss the nature of the deal. But why is it that... Uh, you can't name the, the lender. I think most people know who it is. Um, why can't we say the, the, the word? Well, because they, because they, uh, they frankly knew that one of the underbidders was uh, spitting chips. I don't know if you use that expression in England, but they were well, pretty... I we do, Harry, but I know what you mean. Yeah, well, he was pretty pissed off that he didn't get the deal. And uh, has caused some negative publicity about it. And um, they have no interest in being involved in public spats. They just want to do business. They were the winning bidder. They got the deal, and that was the end of it. And if okay, they got... the deal, though, as I understand it, is that the the provider of the loan finance, who who many people might think is Sanderson, uh, uh, was given quarter of a million quid's worth of shares uh, as a signing on fee uh, for doing the deal. And they are free to sell the shares, and then they lend you money. Well, I'd have bid for this. If I, if you give me a quarter of a million quids of shares, and I can sell them, I'll lend you some money. It, it seems like a, you know, a not a, not a terribly good deal in that respect. It, from the, yeah, that analysis, it's, 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 isn't it? No, but that analysis you just gave was wrong, Tom. That wasn't that that that. Uh, 
for eight and a half million shares that were trading in the market at 1p that were issued at uh, what it was 2p were issued to release security full stop they were not to the lender the lender's another party and um so it wasn't to the party that you you know you you put one and plus one and got three out of that it wasn't to sanderson um what do you call it the, the, the yes the sorry the the eight and a half million shares was to sanderson but they're not that lender and therefore um you know you you saying that they then went and sold them sold the shares to invest in the company isn't correct they um they the, went the, the eight and a half million shares that were issued uh, were to the previous lender correct why did the why was the previous facility terminated it wasn't terminated it, sim it simply wasn't performing well enough uh, for reasons that i can't disclose and not to do with kefi but it simply wasn't performing well enough and we needed uh, we needed to bridge that problem we needed to overcome their inability to serve that facility properly so it was a stopgap measure if you like with a third party and uh, that third party we wanted to do a couple of things one is the stopgap measure to ensure that the company was liquid uh, do we do one of those deals uh, that were being offered to us by three different um, entities or competitors or do we do a placing and we elected given the given the um, you know expected short-term milestones that are imminent in the, in the in the company we decided to do one of those three deals and we picked the best one so okay. that was that was just let me get this straight the previous lender was yeah. unable to supply you effectively with the cash you needed they were failing yet you had to give them shares to buy them out of the security surely effectively they were the ones in default why are you having to pay them off isn't that a reward for failure? Uh, well, in the scheme of things, given what was going on with the security arrangements and what and the benefits to the company of releasing that security, it was worthwhile, Tom. Um, that's a simple answer. Okay. So uh, would I be right in assuming that the recent large sales that have gone through would have been the previous lender, who we now think is Sanderson, basically cashing in its chips? Uh, well, if you ask me what I think, I'm told that it's not. But, you know, I can't swear to that. I'm not Sanderson, but I, they tell me that they haven't. Uh, and they're happy to sit and hold. But that's that's what they've told me. Okay. So so the new lender is not being given any shares up front? Uh, no. He was paid a cash fee, I think, of £37,000, an arrangement fee. So they get a cash fee and then they will advance you... Uh, uh, things in time is this uh, is this facility a death spiral well if you if you define as death spiral as something that has the right to convert at the share market price yes if you could defining a death spiral as one where they can determine how they do that and when they do that and uh, and uh, on a material sum of money no we don't have to draw down and they can they have the right to convert if we draw down but only in small amounts of 250,000 pounds so yes and no tom it's not a they're not it's not a large facility it's not large installments but they do have the right to convert at the stock market price whether it's higher or lower given that it is now only 6 weeks until the uh, end of september until until early october is it possible that you won't have to draw down on this facility at all? 
No, the reason we had to install it is that we weren't being properly serviced by the previous lender for this period of time and we need to draw down some money to get us to the end of September. Okay, uh, right. Um, now, uh, I think actually uh, that is it. Just one thing, uh, the, the, the two happy. when did we, when you, two years ago, when were you saying that first production was going to be? Well, before the first state of emergency, um, we thought it would be about now. Um, I've lost track, to be honest, but we've had we had two years of states of emergency consecutively, which uh, then came to an end. Um, uh, so I think we, we lost, uh, what, two to three years with these states of emergency. But are you now, uh, would you bet, bet the ranch or uh, your wife or your mother-in-law uh, uh, on you hitting the current deadlines? I think it's unstoppable, Tom. I, I, you know, obviously when you're in the hands of, other, of third parties, uh, one can only you know, judge them and their behaviour. But um, this is unstoppable. <laughs> the community is, uh, is past the point of no return. The community was, um, without going into all the details in, in such a short period of time, they were embarrassed at the local security incidents. Uh, they they apologised. Um, there's now permanent armed security on the site. Um, they're you know, calling for the project to be triggered. Uh, they want no more delays. The administration, the government administration, has uh, replaced people, expanded their teams. They, they're sort of jumping whenever we ask for something. And the local investors need to get their, you know, boards aligned to sign off on all these security reports and so on, to make sure that those conservative bank boards and insurance company boards have got, you know, their, you know, um, governance procedures complied with. And they're all sincere people. Nobody's trying to block it. It seems to me unstoppable. Um, only with the caveat that. You know, I'm not the signatory, other people are the signatory, but I, I don't see anybody trying to do anything other than comply with his timetable to get the show started in, in uh, well, to close in September and, and start the work on the ground in October. Okay. Well, hopefully momentum is with you, as it is indeed with the England cricket side in the ashes after the last uh, day's play of the last test. Thank you very much for your time, Harry. I'll speak to you again soon. Okay. Thanks, John. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Harry Adams. Uh, CEOs do not pay to appear on the show. I invite those who I find interesting, who I think have questions to answer, or who potentially have a very interesting company. Uh, in the case of Kefi Minerals, I am a shareholder. I do believe in the asset at Tulu Cappy. And actually, I do believe in the management. I've known Harry Adams for a long time. Uh, he hasn't always had the best of luck. I think the first time I met him, uh, he was in London and he was explaining what has happened to a company in Australia. He'd run a company which had a coal mine, an underground coal mine, where there had been a fire. It's one of those things that happens very, very rarely. There's nothing you can do about it. It's just terribly, terribly bad luck. The fire just burnt out the complete mine. The company was a write-off. Uh, poor Harry. It was unlucky. Some people make their own luck. Some people are kind of unlucky. In the end, uh, you don't always have bad luck in life. 
Uh, Harry had a bit of a uh, Sir Lescalier moment uh, with that podcast. Uh, he noted uh, after he'd gone off uh, that the recent sale of Toro Gold was notable in that the sale price was almost identical of the asset which was being sold was almost identical to the bankable bit of Tulu Cappy and had just started production. So it's where Harry will be in two years' time. And the sale price was almost identical to the net present value. That, of course, is the acid test of net present values. Uh, you can bring in experts to do des- desktop modeling, uh, work out the net present value of any project, whether it's an oil project uh, or a, a, a mine. Uh, and net present value is the way to value them. It's the net value of all future discounted cash flows. You, you can do these studies, but sometimes the net present value is accurate. Sometimes it's not. We've seen with companies like Beacon Hill and Range Resources, uh, they have made great hay about net present values showing that assets are hugely undervalued. In the end, the acid test is what can they be sold for? And in those two cases, the assets were sold for more or less nothing. Uh, The net present value was purely illusory. In the case of Toro Gold, uh, the net present value was accurate. Uh, Part of it uh, depends on the credibility of those carrying out the study, part of it on the credibility of the management, part of it, again, I suspect, is just luck. I do believe that Tulukapi has a material uh, net asset value, which is greatly in excess of the current share price, which is why I continue to hold the shares. Notwithstanding that, I've known Harry long enough uh, to ask him some tough questions uh, about Uh, his company, his project, uh, his financing. I hope you agree that I did give him a fairly tough time there. I hope you also admit that my jokes weren't half bad. Uh, I do see uh, time and time again that CEOs do presentations and interviews for which they pay. I see, uh, as I come to record this segment of today's radio show, uh, a company called Beowulf Mining has put out an RNS reach. That is to say, an announcement which is not material to the share price. I should cocoa. The RNS reach is to say that the CEO, Mr. Budge, has recorded a paid-for interview with a company called BRR Media. The problem with these paid-for interviews is that it's prostitution. Uh, the companies pay to be asked soft questions. Uh, The relationship is utterly akin to that of the prostitute and her or his client. As such, the questions are not uh, how long is your dick, but whether your dick is enormous or ginormous. That is the drift of the questions. The interviews are completely and utterly worthless. Companies will argue that investors, and you hear this from mining and oil juniors all the time, investors simply don't appreciate the value of the story. And there's no broker coverage. Well, that's not surprising. If you are a tiddly little company, there will be no broker coverage of you. You don't operate in that part of the market. Since there is no chance of there being any serious institutional investor, there will be no serious broker coverage. You therefore have to pay to generate coverage. Uh, Companies often argue that they are doing it because investors simply don't appreciate the true value of the story. 
I'm afraid the answer is that investors do appreciate the true value of the story. Mr. Market can be a very, very harsh judge. And in the case of all those shitty little companies at the bottom end of AIM paddling around in the resources pond, and I would put Beerwolf very much in that category, uh, the truth is uh, that Mr. Market has reached a judgment and it has almost always reached a correct judgment. That is to say that the company is worthless. It doesn't matter how much the company spends on promoting its stock via soft interviews or paid-for research. That's not going to change that fact. It might cause a very temporary spike in the share price, into which normally there will be a hugely discounted placing. But it's not going to change the value of the business. The market has got the business uh, uh, the valuation correct. The market, of course, is not always correct. If we had completely perfect markets, then Warren Buffett wouldn't exist. Uh, There would be no point in us investing in shares. We would just buy tracker funds and see what happened. The market does get it wrong, uh, and therefore there are occasionally opportunities. Uh, But generally, I tend to find that those companies that are most aggressive in ramping their shares are those where the share price is probably correct, if not uh, generous. I remember Mark Slater giving a presentation at, I think it was Mark Slater, at a UK investor show some years ago, where he produced some research uh, correlating the number of broker buy notes among smaller companies and the share price. Uh, Broker notes uh, on smaller companies, and I think he included paid-for research here, are always paid for. Brokers, do for a smaller company, uh, generally the only broker covering it will be the house broker, someone who has a corporate relationship with a company, someone who is paid to be supportive. Uh, The relationship which Mark, I think it was Mark, discovered was that the more buy notes came out, the worse the share price performance. Uh, That is true of juniors on AIM. I think that is probably a reflection of the fact that companies that need to raise capital on a frequent basis because they are cash-guzzling pieces of shit uh, are the ones who spend most of their shareholders' money or more of their shareholders' money than others on promoting the stock to get away the placings to survive. So, more promotional activity means more bubbles in the share price, uh, more placings, more dilution, more destruction of value. Anyhow, uh, I hope that uh, Harry Adams will prove his doubts as wrong, uh, because, of course, it helps my transition to retirement. This podcast, of course, would not be possible uh, without the support of our sponsor. We don't go down the model of taking money from companies, which is why we are able to be critical. Our sponsor for this edition is Riverfork Global Capital, uh, the leading provider of funding to junior listed companies. Riverfort uh, provides funding instruments which include short to medium term loans, asset backed loans, convertible debt, royalty and equity financings. Uh, I know some people term this merely as death spiral financing. It's not. That's an oversimplification. And I think amongst the alternative, no, I know amongst the alternative providers of financing, Riverfort is best of breed, which is why I am very happy that they sponsor this show uh, and indeed have sponsored the last five. So thank you very much to them. 
If you are the CEO or FD of a junior which is seeking financing, uh, perhaps you would consider uh, contacting Riverfort. Uh, mention where you heard about it and contact info at riverfortcapital.com uh, for a one-to-one session explaining what they do. Now, we've had the CEO, but that's not the only guest on the show. My second guest today is Gary Newman. Gary Newman is the resources specialist writer at Share Profits. He is actually a professional journalist, but his main line is fishing. Gary, would you say uh, on balance that anglers tell more lies about the uh, sizes of their catches or folks on bulletin boards tell more lies about the sizes of their profits? Uh, probably more likely to be on the uh, bulletin boards, I'd say, actually. Um, I mean, anglers are obviously well known for exaggerating the size of things, um, certainly fish they catch. Um, but I think you see a lot of outright lies, certainly on the bulletin boards, uh, just so people can make a few quid um, quickly, normally. It's, uh, your fishing stuff, I, I really do enjoy seeing photos of you in, in the most sort of far-flung places, holding quite enormous fish. What is the biggest fish you've ever caught? Around uh, about 300 pounds. Um, that was an Arapaima. Um, they're sort of native to South America. Uh, but no, I do, I do travel all over the place, really. Um, so I've got more 300 pounds? That's, that's 20 stone? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I'd, I'd a few, a it's few like holding evil Knievel in your hands whilst in the <laughs> river. <laughs> yeah, it's very, I know, quite big. I mean, no, they go a lot bigger, some of the fish out there. So, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, Good, yeah, good to travel. I like, yeah, I like going well all over the place. Off to Russia very soon in a few weeks' time, um, towards the end of September. Um, yeah, eastern part of Russia, so that should be good. Isn't some of the some of the fishing stuff? I, I watched that program with that that sort of man who looks a bit like Malcolm Stacy, who goes after catching fish that eat people. Isn't it? Uh, you know the one I mean. Oh, yes, yeah, Jeremy Wade, yeah, River Monsters, yes. That's the one. Yes. Uh, it, it, some of it strikes me as a bit dangerous. Uh, some of the places are, yes. Yeah, I mean, um, next year, for instance, I'm looking at possibly going to the Congo, um, which probably isn't the safest place at the moment. Uh, but it's the same as anywhere. I mean, you could be walking through London and have problems. So, it's, I mean, the actual chances of anything happening while you're there are still, still pretty remote a lot of the time. Robert, this this the, the guy who looks like Malcolm Stacey. He, he meets these fish, which which could do some severe damage to you. Um, yeah, I mean, I've had in Texas had alligator gar up to around about two hundred pounds, and I mean, when you're holding one of those on the bank, um, they've got yeah seriously sharp teeth on them, so you, you do have to be careful. Um, but like anywhere, I mean, a lot of the time it's more likely to be put you have problems with people rather than the actual fish in a lot of these countries. Okay, well, f- from shark-infested waters or, or uh, alligator gar-infested waters, uh, it, it, one can move smoothly onto the world of AIM, where you uh, tend, I mean, you've written for share profits about all sorts of companies, uh, mm. but you tend to, to specialise in oil and mining companies. Why is that? Um, it just sort of gets my interest. I mean, when I first started out sort of looking at AIM, shares back in it's been around 2009 2010 um the first sort of few investments i made um were into sort of oil companies um and sort of moved on to miners as well um 
So I've sort of, I think it's good to stick to not have everything in one or two sectors, but certainly get a good knowledge of those sectors so that when news does drop, um, you can at least sort of analyse it um, better than you would do if you if you're investing across a really broad um, section of different shares and different sectors. Um, you'll never really become very knowledgeable on that on any particular sector. Well, let's start with the miners. I mean, you said you started investing in AIM shares in about 2010. Uh, for most of the last nine years, investing in AIM miners has been a pretty miserable experience. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, oil, have, you, have, you, have you made money from those shares? Yeah, it's been there's been a few, not so much on AIM, um, actually. I mean, I'm more into sort of the oil companies, uh, mining companies. I do tend to go for ones that are already in production um, and preferably some of the larger companies or larger AIM companies as well. Um, companies like, I don't know, Central Asia, Asia Metals, for instance. Um, I mean, they've done fairly well. I mean, at the moment, they've dropped back a bit with copper being weaker. Um, but yeah, I'm always looking for ones that are cash flow positive or very close to that that stage. Um, I mean, oil companies are a bit different. I mean, you get a big strike with a company um, and the share price, you get a lot of volatility there. I mean, the market's not like it was back in 2010, 2011, obviously. Um, where you had you had massive rises just on the fact that a company was drilling before they'd even found anything, uh, which was unsustainable. Uh, but these days it seems to have gone the other way. Um, I mean, even when you get a big fine, there's not as much interest as you'd expect sometimes. Okay, let's start with the mining one, uh, mining ones. So your mm. preferences for the those which have already got assets, got production, or are close to it. Yep. Are you starting with a if one is going to make money from such stocks, do you start by having to call the macro cycle? It may a company may have the greatest gold range of gold producing assets in the world or copper producing assets, but if you're at the wrong part of the cycle, you're going to lose money, aren't you? Oh, definitely. Oh. I mean, they're very, yeah, they're very much uh, like that mining companies. I mean, you've got to be getting in when at the bottom of the cycle um, and looking to at least cash some of your investment in on sort of towards the top of it. I mean, unless you're looking at investing over a very long period, sort of 20, 25 years. Um, and even then you need a bit of luck with those sort of companies, um, which a lot, I mean, a lot of people haven't got the patience for that sort of investing anyway. Um, I mean, you need to also look at the longevity of the assets that they've got. I mean, some of these companies look great on paper, um, but then you look at the actual life of the mine they've got, and it might only be five years. Um, so they'll have a fantastic looking PE ratio. Um, but the reality is that in five years' time, they have exhausted the resource. Um, and where do they go from there almost? And are they actually going to return any money to shareholders during that, during that period when the mine's actually running and making profit? Okay, going back to the macro thing, if mm. uh, uh, I'm, I'm afraid I don't know where the copper price is, I should know, but I don't. Uh, but uh, $2.7 a pound roughly at the moment. Okay, you're well done. Is that is that high or low? What does that mean? Is it's higher than it was a couple of years ago. I mean, it dropped down to um, around, it nearly got down to $2 a pound. I mean, that's the other thing you've got to look at with some of these smaller mining companies. Um, it's no good if they're only profitable right at the top of the cycle. You want ones that have got um, at least some sort of security. Um, you're looking at the ones that are in the sort of bottom, well, certainly the bottom two quartiles um, in terms of their all in sustaining costs 
Um, otherwise, if the if the price drops of the commodity, you get you just get screwed straight away. Um, is it, on copper, surely copper. <coughs> excuse me, copper is is a. Uh, uh, pretty closely correlated to world economic growth, and all the all the signals we, we we have coming out from the major economies is there is a very real danger that we're going into recession. Surely that would be telling us that copper is not going to have a great couple of years, or is it already pricing that in? I mean, it's normally a good sort of six months or more in advance, I think, with copper. I mean, copper is actually one of the better ones for forecasting the recession coming. Um, but the problem you've got these days is a lot of the commodities, they're so driven by derivative trading as opposed to actual supply and demand. It's very hard to tell, I think, certainly compared to past years, where a lot of it was purely down to sort of the market, yeah, market dynamics of supply and demand. Okay, let's move to gold. Gold, mm. uh, having been a bit of a dog investment for uh, quite a while, has been perking up uh, materially as of late. Uh, perhaps uh, another sort of indication that all is not well in the world today. Uh, should since you know you have been owning shares in dividend-paying gold majors for a while, presumably you're you're now sitting on material gains. Are you tempted to be saying, well, I should bank a bit of that? Or do you believe people who say that gold is going to go way past $2,000? Um, I would be looking, yeah, this sort of time or very soon to at least be taking some profit on, on those type of investments. Um, I mean, I, I don't believe that gold will go to the levels that some people are forecasting. I mean, you see forecasts are like three, $4,000 an ounce. Um, I just don't see that happening. Um, I mean, gold's a real difficult one because, I mean, obviously the intrinsic value of it as a metal is high, but the actual, in that terms of its actual usage, it's not that much in demand. Certainly not like, I mean, silver, for instance, another precious metal, and um, that's got a lot more uses industrially. Um, so you, I mean, silver, I would favour over gold in general, to be honest. But silver, of course, used to have the huge use of silver used to be for photographic um, uh, photography, but that uh, with digital photography that ended, and so that the, the gold silver it used to be what the ratio used to be what was it fifty to one, and then we had this, we had the big mismatch of the bunker hunts trying to corner the silver market and the share price the price going through the roof, and then yep. they, they they obviously went bust, and then uh, and then we had the the move to digital photography and it went through the floor. Uh, so it's sort of it's very hard to talk about historic uh, uh, silver rate, silver gold ratios with those sort of anomalies having thrown things out of kilter. Oh, definitely. I mean, in a few years' time, I mean, I think it will go the other way in terms of silver. I mean, silver is obviously used in um, electrical contacts, um, and with the advent of, I mean, if you get more of a switch over to electric vehicles, for instance, there's going to be a lot more silver usage. I, I would imagine. Um, it's also highly used in uh, solar panels as well. Um, so, yeah, renewable energy uses quite a lot of silver. And I think the other problem is there's not that many new silver mines um, coming online at the moment. Um, I mean, certainly if you look around on the London Stock Exchange, there's not a lot of options if you want to invest in, a, in companies mining silver. Um, so, Hochschild. Uh, yeah, you've got Hochschild, you've got Fresnillo, obviously, um, with their Mexican operations and also quite a lot of gold there. But there's not there's not a lot else. Um, 
from that point of view. Um, I mean, the other thing with silver is you've got, I mean, going back to the high prices you saw, obviously that encouraged a lot of um, scrap silver to come onto the market when prices were high. Um, so you've not only got the actual production side, what's being mined, you've also got to look at um, excess supply from the scrap metal side of things, which can affect can affect prices as well. The same with all these metals. So you're saying your long-term preference is silver over gold. Would you, do, do you, I know you said that gold has sort of inherent value and we talked about the industrial uses of gold and silver. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, isn't the thing about gold is, is myself as, uh, you know, I know you did economics, so don't wriggle out of this one. No, no. As, <laughs> as, as, <laughs> sorry? It's a long time ago when I did it. I know it's a long time ago. It's a long time ago when I studied it too. But I would say that you know, I'm, I believe in sound money and mm-hmm. given... Uh, uh, and that gold is a currency. Um, do you think it has lost that status? Do you think people believe in things like Bitcoin, which to me is the ultimate unsound money? Um, but uh, has gold lost that status of being a currency? Do people not view it that way anymore? I think it still is viewed as a currency. Um, certainly, I mean, in some countries more so than others. I mean, obviously, India, it's a big thing. China. Um, I mean, when gold prices were low recently, it was sort of notable that Russia and China were buying up huge amounts of, of the gold that was available at the time, um, whilst you had quite a lot of the other countries like reducing their reserves. Um, yeah, they were, they were taking whatever was coming onto the market um, and probably in quite a strong position now as well with the amount they hold. OK, so gold, you'd be tempted to take some profits from the majors going forward. Um, at sort of 1400, 1450, this is your cue to take a few of the profits you've banked. What about the juniors? Because the juniors haven't had a run. They've, I mean, one or two of them have done okay. Uh, um, you, you could, I'm trying to think. Trying, Ariane has done okay as it sort of made the move from being uh, a developer to a, a producer. Um, but as a as a class. The gold, the precious metals juniors uh, are still pretty much uh, pariahs, aren't they? Definitely. I think people are very wary these days of the sort of smaller companies. Um, I mean, the other problem you've got is I think there's a lot. People have got a lot less patience than they used to have. They'd rather invest in some junk share that might double their money overnight or they might lose 90 percent of their money, depending on how it goes and when they get out. Um, rather than actually putting money into a company that has moved into production and they might need to hold for the next year or two to see a sort of decent return. Um, I mean, I also think people have got a very skewed idea of what actually constitutes a good return these days. Um, I mean, you see, you see, I mean, certainly from reading the bulletin boards and social media, um, people almost want to double their money overnight. Um, they're not interested in making sort of 20, 30% in a year on an investment. Um, which seems crazy because, I mean, that's still still a very good return. Uh, the long-run average return on equities is 7% a year. So anyone who's doing 20%, maybe not quite as good as Warren Buffett, but they're still doing spectacularly well. Um, and obviously, people who are seeking these uh, uh, stunning returns of 40% or 50% per investment are going to come a cropper because oh, with God. risk come with, with reward – the potential reward comes risk, and sooner or later they're going to lose the loss on something. Oh, very much the case. Yeah, I mean, they might get lucky a few times, but you don't continue to get lucky all of the time. 
Um, I mean, the only people probably that do that are often the people that have got these sort of private groups or private forums. Um, they're actually driving the prices up on these micro cup companies. I mean, you, you read of people like almost queuing up to join some of these groups. And I've no doubt that the people running them probably buy into those companies at the bottom, get a load of their followers to buy, and the price goes up and obviously creates liquidity for them to sell. Um, whilst obviously, yeah, everyone else obviously gets screwed on those. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of sort of... You're, 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 you're saying that the only people who win by investing in ultimately worthless gambling chips on the casino are people who commit what is, uh, what is in fact, market abuse. Uh, they're urging, a uh, sort of Ponzi-like way, urging yes, others yes. to buy whilst they sell. I mean, you do see a lot of those, types, certainly on the um, sort of companies below, sort of, I don't know, sort of 10 million market cap, where there's low liquidity. Um, I mean, you'll, you'll have some company that virtually no one's ever heard of. It's not been mentioned for months. Um, suddenly, there'll be a load of people on Twitter all mentioned at the same time. Um, a quick flurry of buys goes through. Um, you don't doesn't even need to be that much, actually. I mean, when you watch them, sometimes they just chuck in one or two K at a time on it. But sort of quick fire, sort of 10, 15 success, successive buys. Um, and due to the low liquidity, the price only goes through the roof. Um, obviously, that then gets people's attention and creates sort of snowball effect until it all comes crashing down, which is what normally happens for those. What is the economic point of such an exercise? Uh, it is market abuse. It is criminal. Uh, I think we all know uh, quite a lot of people who engage in it uh, mm -hmm. because we've seen them at it so many times. Uh, the authorities obviously do nothing about it, but it is a transfer of wealth from those uh, who are not breaking the law but are stupid uh, to those who are breaking the law. And it has absolutely no benefit to the real economy whatsoever. Oh, definitely. Oh, not. I mean, a lot of the time, it actually keeps these companies that have got no real purpose on aim. It keeps them going. Um, I mean, the same way as placings do. I mean, you've got companies that have just burnt through money, never achieved anything. But if they can offer a placing that the people taking those shares know that they're going to get a quick return somehow on those shares, whether they forward sold them or whether there's going to be some piece of news that pumps the share price up briefly. Um, they'd rather put money into that than a company that is actually trying to grow the business, has got a real business there um, and needs funding. Um, I, mean, if it, I mean, if it carries on like this, you have to wonder sort of how long AIM's going to be around because, I mean, I mean, the whole point of AIM um, was to for companies that are actually at the growth stage to obtain funding. Um, but if those funds keep getting channeled into companies that just, like lifestyle companies, just waste it, um, that's not really sustainable long term, I wouldn't have thought. It is capital misallocation. There will inevitably be some backlash. Uh, very interesting that point you made about placings. Uh, I was commenting uh, uh, just uh, recently on the placing by Dev Clever uh, on the standard list. Uh, mm. The company announces a placing at 7.30 in the morning at 3.5p, and at 7.40 it announces... Uh, what appears to be a major new contract. Uh, naturally, there were no numbers attached, but it's with a name, uh, and it was ramped to high heaven. Now, you do have to wonder about the order of events there. The broker was Novum Securities. Right. Uh, did Novum, Novum must have been aware, uh, as it was getting the placing letters in on Friday, there was an RNS coming out on Monday about a contract. Do you think 
uh, it is conceivable that the people who took part in that placing were not told there is something big happening soon or there is going to be some good news soon? You would think that's the only reason that people would take part in placings on a lot of these small companies. I mean, it was a placing, by the way, which was done at uh, round about mid price. So it wasn't done as a discount. Why on earth would anyone take part in a company which is materially overvalued on fundamentals, whose shares have lost 75% from their peak, take part in a placing at mid price? Uh, I mean, either they were given the, the, the nudge, which to me is just grossly unfair, mm-hmm. uh, or because they then get to flip on to people who didn't have the nudge, or it must have come as the most amazing surprise to them. And what a great, you know, my Christmas has come early. I've taken part in a placing, and lo and behold, there's a wonderful contract announced 10 minutes later. Yeah, you do wonder sometimes if, uh, if anyone could be quite that lucky with these companies. Uh... <laughs> But, I mean, you get the same sort of thing. I mean, some of the companies themselves, I mean, you see these, I mean, RNS Reach um, announcements are sort of pet hate of mine these days. Um, they're used, I mean, they're basically a marketing device, but people... Well, that's what they're meant to be. They're meant to be a marketing thing, but they were meant to be a marketing thing for products. So mm-hmm. Company X has got a new product to launch. It is not price sensitive. It is not going to require earnings to be, uh, uh, forecast to be changed by more than 5%. So you can put it out as an RNS reach, but actually, it's now they're now used as marketing devices for the shares. Oh, definitely. I mean, sometimes, you're, like you're saying, they're not supposed to be price sensitive. Yet you'll see the share price on some of these tiny companies. I mean, I've seen it more than double off the back of an RNS reach, um, only very briefly, obviously, once everyone realises um, that if it was real news, it'd have to come through an RNS. But it, it does affect the market. Uh, releasing. Do you think people? Do you think all investors understand the difference? I think a lot of people probably don't, um, and there's obviously some people as well that don't want people to understand. Um, they'll they're very quick to point out the news in an RNS reach, but they forget to mention that it was wasn't an actual proper RNS from the company um, that's price sensitive. Uh, it's just sort of a marketing marketing tool basically. And then of course you have those news feed services like Alliance News, which are paid by the companies. Uh, to put uh, the most uh, you know, optimistic spin on whatever the company has announced as its RNS. Uh, yeah. I mean, well, I, mean I, I think, you know, for you and me, Gary, when we go to hell, uh, we will be uh, forced to go and work for Alliance News and have <laughs> to turn, uh, turn an RNS, which is a profits warning, into company promises better next year as a headline. They always seem to put we are pleased to announce at the start of these RNSs and then sort of yeah, drop a bombshell quite a few of these things as well that you see quite <laughs> that often. Is, that I think is just the laziness and stupidity of PR people, which would be perhaps another form of hell for you and me <laughs> going into PR. Um, now going back to this idea of gold juniors underperforming, mm. is that because uh, in the period since the last boom in... A, we did have a boom in gold junior stocks back in 2010-11, and prices got so far ahead of themselves that a lot of people bought in and lost a lot of money. And but also that it's dawned on people that the people who run aimlessed mining companies are in many cases not very good, in other cases not very honest, and in far too many cases grotesquely overpaid. 
Yeah, I mean, there's that famous Mark Twain quote, obviously, that a, the gold mine is a hole in the ground where a liar stood at the top. Um, yeah. And that actually, I mean, in some cases, unfortunately, yeah, it does ring true. Um, I mean, people don't look into the history of the of these sort of licenses and mines that a lot of these small companies have got. I mean, if they actually look back, um, they'll see that it's it'll be some prospect that has been going. Gold was, might have been discovered 20, 30 years ago. Uh, it's never been economic to actually produce it. Um, people have had a go and fouled. Um, same with same with oil as well. Um, yeah, it sounds great to say we've got all these resources in the ground. Um, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, some of the investors they don't actually look at whether there's a chance of getting them out out of the ground. Um, well, but, how... yeah, but that's the point you made earlier about how if you're going to invest in a mining company, you've got to check whether the asset. Uh, is a quality one. You know, if it's in the exploration phase, what the sort of grades they're getting. But if it's if they're starting to put a plan together to mine, about just how economic it really is. Uh, and the reality is, is that a lot of the world's the world's great mine deposits have already been discovered. Mm. And uh, the idea that some piddly little junior on AIM is going to stumble across something which turns into a great project. It can happen, sentiment being a sort yep. of case study, but in nearly every case, it doesn't happen. No, it's very true. I mean, you have to question why some tiny little company on AIM has ended up with a license in a lot of a lot of situations. No I mean, one else wants it. It's worth no, exactly. It. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they do occasionally get lucky. I mean, it's been, uh, in both sort of mining and oil as well. Um, I mean, exploration, you've probably got more chance of getting lucky than by investing in a company that's acquired some licenses on the cheap of a either a depleted mine or a license that's sort of never been economic to actually produce from. Um, but that, there are two companies I can think of on AIM, or no, one on the AIM, one on the standard list, mm -hmm. which are claiming that they are going to develop assets which were first being promoted as ones that were going to be developed into mines before I was born. Yeah, yeah. No, you see that quite often. I mean, they're, they're some of the I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of uh, uh, by the way, of Alba with Gold Mines of Wales. Oh, yeah, uh, that of was first yeah. promoted in the early 60s. And uh, Paris Mountain, Anglesey Mining's uh, uh, mine, a hole in the ground in Anglesey, which again, it dates back to the 60s. I mean, a lot of these operations, they might, I mean, they might have potential on a very small scale. Um, they might have got a bit of gold out the ground or or sort of even panning for it, which is good grades. But um, I mean, the <laughs> chance of it ever being upscaled no one... into a commercial operation is, yeah, is very remote. Between the early 60s and now, I don't know how many boom, you know, bull markets we've had in mining and gold or in whatever is meant to be in Paris Mountain in uh, Anglesey. But we must have had seven or eight or nine. And if they've failed to get these projects off the ground during seven or eight uh, bull market cycles, why on earth should it be different this time? Oh, definitely not. I mean, I mean, with some of these some of these metals and I mean, with oil as well, you've obviously got new technology comes in, which can change the economics slightly, um, but not normally to the extent. I mean, if they've gone through those sort of that many booms and never been put into production, you, you do have to wonder. Um, I mean, some of these it's almost like pass the parcel with some of these licenses as well. Um, you look at all the sort of failed operations that they've been passed around. 
previously and I mean lots of money's been put into them um probably a lot of that going into the pockets of the board of directors in some cases um but then I mean they've never none of some of them have never actually produced anything at all over a do period think, of 40 50 years do you think that uh, um aim mining and to a mar- only marginally lesser extent oil executives can justify their salaries there can, be, there can be no shortage of these people out there because so many of these companies have gone bust over the years. So in terms of supply and demand, there must be many, much, much greater supply of folks to run shitty little resource stocks than there is demand for these people. Yet they earn enormous salaries. Oh, definitely. I mean, in some cases, you look at their sort of actual remuneration packages overall. I mean, it's crazy amounts, like three, four hundred thousand pounds a year. Um, I mean, taking it to the extreme, I think it was Todd Kozel, wasn't it? Uh, um, Golf Keystone, he was, I think it was about nearly 20 million one year um, when that was at its peak. It was it was some ridiculous amount. Um, But I mean, in in general, I mean, they most of them probably they don't earn their salary at all. Um, yeah, three or four hundred thousand is an enormous amount of money, but it's also what do you actually do with your day? Mm. I, I've, I've always wondered this: if you are running a company which is going to which is exploring for whatever in whatever region, yep. it's not like you're actually drilling, doing the drilling yourself. Uh, no. You're just, you know, managing a team which for bits of the year is doing some drilling and then there's another team which for bits of the year is analyzing the results so it's not really it's not like you have to work 24 hours a day seven seven uh uh, uh to, to, to actually manage that process is it no no you no paid for interviews with justin the clown and still <laughs> have time on your hands yeah, it's very much the case with some of them, I think. They, I mean, you do wonder what they actually do um, because, I mean, they've got often got subsidiaries set up in, in the company with people on the ground that will do all the work anyway. Um, I mean, you look at some of these small rain companies, they'll have sort of eight, ten subsidiaries listed um, in various places that are part of them. Um, and they probably, yeah, I mean, they probably do very little themselves, maybe flying around first class, having a, having a look occasionally at what's going on on the ground, take a few photos. For a bit of PR, but um, go back and do an interview with Justin the Clown. Go and do an interview with proactive investors, yeah. uh, and you still got to work work out what you're going to do in the afternoon. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is, a lot of these guys they don't actually have much in the way of money um, invested in the company. Um, I mean, sometimes on paper it'll appear like they've got a fair amount of their own money at stake, um, but if you look more closely, quite often it's been via sort of options being awarded or they have invested at some tiny amount uh, pre-IPO. Um, so they have often haven't got that much of their own money on the line anyway. Um, I mean, there's a few exceptions of that. Um, I remember uh, President Energy, which was, I think, Peter Levine. I mean, he, I remember he just kept buying and buying more shares in the company, and that's uh, oil company, and that's actually turned out to be a success um i can't remember what's valued at now it's, it's over 100 million anyway so it has actually done okay um and there's a few others like that um but generally if i haven't got any skin in the game that's another sort of good reason to avoid them would you buy shares in a resource company where the boss a had minimal skin in the game and b appeared to pay himself rather too much i say himself they're nearly always men aren't they 
<laughs> in a lot of cases, you're right, actually. Yes, yeah. Um, I mean, quite a lot of them actually remind me of used car salesmen as well when you see them. Um, I I have done in the past. I mean, there have been exceptions to that. I mean, Sarika Energy um, is one that, um, I mean, I did very well for myself, um, which that was from sort of 5p. I can't remember which trade in that. It's about 110, 120 pence at the moment. Um, they had very little skin in the game themselves, um, but the assets did look good on that one. Um, they were, it was the right time when they were buying. Uh, oil was at the bottom of the cycle. Uh, and the other thing I liked about that company in particular was that they didn't spend all their time going on doing podcasts and interviews all over the place. They actually just got on with developing the business. Um, and yeah, they, I mean, they've done, they've done well out of that. Um, I mean, Rock Rose is another example of that. Um, I mean, Andrew Austin was a bit sceptical of. I think it was I guess he was with prior to that. I guess and he did net his first holdings thing and uh where he basically said he where he said he was buying shares but was in fact selling nearly his entire holding and the company did shares did completely tank. Mm. So after that I I was loath to give the guy a second chance because he had behaved disgracefully. Yeah, I mean, he's, he seems to have done, so far, he seems to have done a good job. He's done brilliant. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's made some good acquisitions there at the right time. Got good, yeah. He's, yeah, he has, he's, that's grown a lot. I mean, anyone who invested that would have done very well out of it. So, yeah, it, it does show you can't always uh, judge someone by their past. But, unfortunately, a lot of the time, you can. I mean, there's, there's some of the directors on AIM, you look at their history, it's just been sort of one car crash after another, really. Yes, indeed. Now, the oil, turning from uh, uh, mining to oil, you, you think made a very interesting uh, uh, comment there about buying assets at the right time. Would it not be the case? Would, it, would this be an unfair statement that the, say that the way that you make money from oil juniors is to back those companies which are buying Assets which are either average or good, as long as they're not bad, but buying them at the bottom of the cycle. And if you do that, any company that buys oil assets at the bottom of the cycle, when you can't, when you almost can't give them away, will over a medium term phase do rather well. And that's investing. Buying shares in oil exploration companies on the hope that the next drill is going to be successful. That's just gambling, isn't it? Um, it, I mean, it's a bit of both there. I mean, yeah, very much so. If you can get into something that's bought at the bottom of the cycle, um, it's, I mean, quite often that there'll be there won't the assets will actually be half decent, they'll just be ones that a larger company no longer wants. I mean, going back to Sarika, that was a BP former BP assets, they were selling off a few bits in the North Sea. Um, there was still oil there, but it just wasn't enough for a multinational a large company like um bp to be interested you see you do see that occasionally um i mean in terms of exploration side of things um i i don't invest in many exploration drills at all myself it's something i i've sort of got lucky with a bit back in sort of 2011 some of the falkland companies and north sea um companies as well sort of like excel excite energy um encore Rock Hopper, a few others back at the time. Um, but, but you're admitting it's luck. But what, you whatever, need, you whatever, need a bit of luck, uh, yes. Technology improving uh, and people bang on about 72% COS and all this sort of bollocks. The mm. reality is 
it's what one in eight wells drilled and that's our even after all the seismic has been shot etc etc ends up being commercial and uh, that's it's gambling and because you don't know until you drill whether that's going to be you or, or whether that's going to be you or not oh definitely i mean the one i mean the only one i've invested in in recent years was actually um eco atlantic um which obviously had a successful drill in guyana um last week announced a fine but i mean then if you look at the adjacent block to that i mean exxon mobile they had a 90 percent plus success rate on their exploration drills um targeting the same sort of layers um on there um and also the company was funded a it's five, six drills in total it's actually funded for uh, via its partnership with Total and uh, Tullow Oil. Um, so, I mean, that you had good a good chance of a strike there and you're also insulated. The chance of a strike on the basis of neurology, but neurology doesn't always work. We saw that recently with uh, Angus Energy uh, drilling the Kimmeridge at Brockham, which is only mm. six miles away from the Kimmeridge at Horse Hill, and it was totally uncommercial. You have got that, but then, I mean, if you were looking at, I mean, on the um, Starbrook block next door, um, where Exxon were drilling, you've got the Hammerhead Discovery, which actually almost, it's very close to straddling between their block and the Orenduic block, which um, is obviously Eco-Atlantic's one. Um, and also looking at the thickness of the sort of net pay they were getting, uh, I can't remember exact figures. I think it's like 180, 190 foot of net pay they were getting on their drills. So they they were finding large amounts of sort of oil-bearing sandstones there. Um, but neurology, I mean, okay, I'll go back to Guyana as an example mm. where neurology doesn't work. You'll remember it was that uh, uh, block where Northern Petroleum and Wessex was drilling yep. and their first well worked. It yep. just happened the next one was complete disaster. Yeah, you had that with Jersey Oil and Gas as well recently. I mean, actually had an appraisal well um, fouled, didn't they, on, that, on their one, and the share price crashed um, as a result of that. So, I mean, it's never any guarantee, even when you found oil initially, um, it can still go very wrong at the appraisal stage. I mean, Excite Energy was a good example of that. Yeah. Um, it's great during the exploration phase, but when it actually came to getting it to production, um, no one was interested in the end. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously failed in the end, that company. Is, um, well, I did mention uh, uh, Horse Hill. You must have a view on it. Uh, uh, Horse Hill, uh, to me, there are three scenarios. One, David Lenegas is a misunderstood genius and it is as big as he and Lion Steve Sanderson once claimed it is. Two, I've got it right and then it's likely to be a mom-pop small-scale operation with a few wells, as we've seen throughout southern England throughout the history of oil or three um it's not even that good um and the flow rates decline going forward uh and in, in a hostile political environment uh, nothing ever gets off the ground where do no, you see it going it does seem that it's going to be one that just produces small small amounts of oil over sort of lots of wells i mean i'm not I've not been invested in any of those companies. Obviously, I've followed the story. Um, I'm not that familiar with it, but I'm mean, even the geology side of things. I'm not sure if it's sort of deep enough, a lot of the oil they're finding for, for there ever to be high flow rates anyway. Um, it's, it's, I mean, obviously, you've got Witch Farm, which was very successful. Um, but I, yeah, I'd be surprised. As if, maybe Bramhill pointed out a couple of weeks ago, 
which farm is actually offshore. It's just that the oil comes on board on uh, out of the ground onshore. Yes, you've obviously got. I think that's deeper as well. Which farm, if I remember yeah. correctly? Yeah. So yeah, it's a lot deeper. So you obviously you've got higher pressure there and probably better natural flows as well. Um, yeah, I mean with horse, yeah, Horse Hill. You, they've talked about massive reserves there, but which is all well and good, but it's how quickly you can get it out of the ground and which determines sort of return on investment for anyone putting money. And if you're producing tiny amounts of oil, per, barrels of oil per day, um, it's not a very int- attractive investment to anyone anyway. Um, you could put it, it money it, somewhere else. Yeah. Also just the, the uh, sort of, uh, it, it is, if it sounds too good to be true, it is too good to be true principle. If uh, the claims made by Lenny Gass and lying Steve Sanderson were even a quarter correct. There would have been serious external interest in buying up some of the numerous stakes in that project, which have come up for sale. But there hasn't been. Oh, definitely, that's the no, case. I mean, who was it? I think it was was it Magellan Energy, <laughs> Magellan Resort, some Magellan, someone or other, wasn't it? Resources. Um, who Magellan, owned 30% Magellan sold its thirty five percent stake yeah. in Horse Hill for a, a cash and shares deal, which, in the most charitable sense, is worth twelve million dollars, uh, eleven million in discounted back. But because yeah. of the shares element, it could be worth an awful lot less. Yeah, I mean, and if you look at you look 35% at what, stake in Horse Hill. Yeah, and you look at what UK Oil and Gas have actually acquired subsequent stakes for as well in more recent times after. The, no, that's the, the, most re- that was the most recent one, Gary. Oh, that was, sorry, that was the most the recent one. selling out. And interestingly, the only person who wants to buy the stake is UK Oil and Gas. If yeah, David Lenegas was great about how this was the new Saudi Arabia, you'd have thought Saudi Arabia might have put in a bid. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, someone would have done. Even I mean, if it wasn't of interest to sort of your shells, BP, um, those sort of people, you'd have had a mid-sized company with spare cash um, looking to put money into it. I mean, yeah, there's plenty of those around at the minute. I mean, well, we're talking about Rock Rose earlier. I mean, they've certainly got the firepower in terms of. They've like, got the firepower and they've got the knowledge of onshore England. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and they, yeah, they <laughs> obviously weren't interested. Um, who is who is who is the the worst CEO on AIM? Very difficult one. Um, I mean, there's some that stick out in your mind through having not. Like, yeah, run me through a short list of people who you just can't back their companies because they are toxic. They're useless. I mean, you got people, obviously Peter Landau was terrible. Um, RRL. Yeah, no, he's, he's he's in court in Australia. I think we we can safely well, say he's safe not coming he's back. People, um, who, people who are currently around. I mean, David Le- David Lenigas obviously had his share of failures before. I mean, Andrew Bell um, has had a lot of companies fail over the year, or certainly not achieve much. If you look back, his track record. Um, I just try to think who else there is. There's, there's so many of them out there. That you wrote have... about you wrote about one uh, oil boss in less than complimentary terms the other day. Um, which I think you all wrote about then. David uh, Sefton. Oh, of course, yes, yes, yeah. Could I forget David Sefton? Yeah, sorry, I was thinking in terms because that was obviously um, his new media venture rather than um, his oil venture. Yeah, that's another one. Would um, you, would you, back, would you, based on what David Sefton is known now to have done, would you back any business that he was involved in? 
Uh, I wouldn't actually. No, I mean, I always look at um, sort of the track record of the CEOs. I mean, if they've had if they've had a lot of disasters, um, I certainly wouldn't invest in those sort of companies. I mean, disasters is one thing, but rank dishonesty to well, me is worse. That's not, yeah, it's even worse. Um, I mean, there's some of those. I mean, David Lenigas. Um, I mean, I'm certainly not a fan of what he's done with a lot of the companies he's been involved with. Um, but if I mean, if you were looking to trade shares, um, one thing you can say is that he certainly knows how to sort of pump the share price up. Um, so he's <laughs> there is that side of it as well i mean people do follow some of these ceos because they're very good at the pr side of things and they're there purely just to trade a rise off the back of that rather than them ever actually achieving anything with the company so it's yeah you've got two very different things but i mean i normally look david lenigasen does hold this uh, great record that he's only ever been involved uh, with one london listed company that's ever reported a profit and that turned out to be a fraud viz lonro Oh, of course. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, um, but I mean, a lot of these companies, if you look at how they, the share price action, people would have, some people would have made a lot of money off of those companies before. Usually they, David Lenigas with his family. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Yeah. Um, you've got that side of it. Um, I mean, you've got some of the other ones. Uh, I mean, obviously sound energy. I mean, James Parsons, I mean, that, that went up to nearly a quid. He was talking about multiple, um, TCF of gas being there. Um, I mean, the thing that people have got to remember a lot, of the t- and many I think forget, is that part of the CEO's job is actually to promote the company to investors. Um, I mean, they are salesmen to all intents and purposes, certainly at the lower end of AIM. Um, and people do forget that. They sort of take them at face value a lot of the time. Um, on, on Parsons, uh, hmm. sound energy got up to a peak, yes, you're right, in the, in the 80s. At which point it was valued at 500 million sterling. Yeah. Uh, I was a bear. Um, I was a bear from, uh, uh, from lower than the 80s and remained a bear all the way down to, to 10p or wherever they are now. Um, one thing I would note is Sound Energy never has a single institutional investor. Surely uh, a company which is capitalized at 500 million and not one institution will touch it. Surely that should be sending alarm bells out there. Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the other thing you've got to look at as well is some of these institutional investors aren't quite as much of what people have term an institution as, as no, a proper one. They never, had, they never had a proper fund manager. No, they've like, never they had a proper fund involved. Optiva no. Securities or, uh, you know, Hargreaves Lansdowne nominees. That no, is not an institutional investor. Oh, no, they're just nominee accounts on behalf yeah. of their sort of holders. Um, but you do, I mean, these days, I've seen it on a few shares where you've got um, companies like investment companies listed outside of the UK. It's almost impossible to find out anything about them. Um, they and, don't count as, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, if you can't find, if someone doesn't want you to find out uh, anything about you and you are an investment company, just assume they're Russian money launderers. Oh, definitely. I mean, you've got they don't, that. They don't count yeah. as being an institution, do they? No, definitely not. No. And I mean, some of them are being used purely to try and sort of pump the share price up as well, I'm sure, in some of those cases. I mean, you've got people, I don't know, from the Middle East, um, some of the investment funds you see. Um, also, sort of um, British Virgin Island listed companies. Again, you can't find out anything about them. Um, and I mean, it could be some 
tiny little office with just like just a secretary there or one of these or the company doesn't hardly even exist could be operating out of someone's bedroom um and you wouldn't know any different um so yeah i mean you do have to be very wary i think of um what you actually class as an institutional investor um when looking at these companies you want sort of actual proper names there that you can you can look at and um yeah see who they are who's behind them um and obviously you've got house actually part of it. You know what they're doing, like Neil Woodford. We want them on the shareholder register now. Um, <laughs> what do you feel about when was the last time a company lied to you? Um just trying to think now. Within RNS's, um, I would say I mean I don't actually speak to many companies. Um, I mean that's one thing I try actually try and avoid doing. Um, I'd try because you know they'll lie to you. Yes, yeah, you've got less chance of being lied to or having your opinion sort of skewed by, I mean, some of these people are very likeable, they're very believable, um, and I think that's why people get sucked in so easily by them. If you, uh, so when was the last time you that you felt that you were lied to in an RNS? Um, probably, I mean, Block Energy is one I've covered a couple of times recently, um, where a lot of what they've said in RNSs just didn't stack up. Um, I mean, they never actually informed the market when they stopped production. Um, the RNSs back last April were very unclear. Um, it was interesting, actually. They were um, measuring um, extra, what they were producing in barrels barrels per day rather than barrels of oil or oil equivalent per day um so i'm assuming that probably included the water cut as well um it was certainly very unclear um i mean when they produced production figures about be about a month ago now which were a lot less than their headline figures back when they were testing in april um they'd suddenly switched to barrels of oil equivalent per day um which was yeah which was quite interesting to see so they, I mean, they hadn't actually lied on that fact, um, but it's yeah, you could certainly argue that they'd deceived the market, um, and certainly with in terms of stopping producing. Um, I mean, in Georgia, I believe you only the um, temporary licenses for gas flaring only last for two months anyway, um, so they, there's no way it could have been continuous production, but they should have they should have at least told the market that they'd stopped producing. And after that, they become uninvestable in your view. Uh, they do. I mean, George, Georgia, I'm not a fan of anyway. Um, I mean, if you look at the history of it, uh, again, the licenses that Block Energy have got, um, you look back at their predecessors that had licenses that none of them have done very well out of it. Um, they produce sort of small amounts of oil. Um, generally in Georgia, um, you get large decline problems, um, well stability problems as well. Uh, water cut tends to be high. Um, so I mean, to that's, the, that's a bad region, okay, so we can depart mm. that's one side. But if a company has misled the market in a material sense, would you, should you ever buy their shares? Um, I, I wouldn't do, no. No, certainly not as an investment, no. Um, I mean, if <laughs> trading opportunities might come along, although I, I even try and avoid trading anything that I don't like. If I don't like the company... Um, if you caught them lying or misleading to you once, then the odds are they've lied and misled you numerous times, which you haven't spotted. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly things they can get away with that you would. Yeah, you would probably never spot um, unless you unless you sort of had access to all the facts, which none of us do. Um, so, yeah, if you catch them lying about one thing, it does certainly make you wonder what else they've been lying about. Um, OK, Gary, 
F final question, because I've yep. detained you for too long. Um, yeah, if you had to bet the entire Newman Ranch on one mining stock, uh, one mining junior, or one oil junior, which one would it be? Which which mining one and which oil one? Oh, um, mining one at the moment. Um, how junior are you talking? Very small, like yeah, yeah, small. yeah very small. Really? Um, Hor Horizonte uh, Minerals, um, nickel miner in uh, Brazil. Um, oh, that'd probably be my small miner. Um, I do actually hold hold a small amount of shares there anyway. Um, and for oil, probably at the moment, I would say I3 Energy. Right. Has that got, is it fully financed yet? Uh, no, they've got they've financed for they're drilling a pilot well which is about to spud any day. Um, that will be a vertical well which will then determine. I mean, it's on an existing discovery, so it will determine the um, horizontal well that they'll eventually put in place. And um, then they've got a further uh, um, appraisal well on that block and an appraisal well. That's on Liberator block and an appraisal well on their uh, Serenity block as well. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's got potential. It, it looks fairly cheap to me at the moment. Um, what, 50-odd P? Yeah, around the 50p mark. There's quite a lot of warrants there, um, although, interestingly, they, they can be exercised at cheaper prices and there's been quite a lot of volume, but none of the warrant holders have cashed those in as yet. Um, I mean... It, it's funded for these three drills. Um, it needs funding to go into production. Um, so it's looking at getting a senior debt facility, um, obviously based on the success of these drills. Um, but you also got potential for near-term production there. Um, I mean, that could easily be producing by the middle part of next year. Um, I mean, it's targeting 20,000 barrels of oil per day as well when it, when it does reach production. So it's, I think it's got potential. It's one of those, it's still, there's still risk there until it actually gets to the production stage. Um, but it, it has got the potential there. And there's, I mean, there's infrastructure around it as well um, from the up from the other field, couple of other fields around around that area. So, yeah, I mean, that that'd probably be, those two would probably be my choices. Okay, and finally, uh, just to cheat, because you do occasionally uh, write about non-resource uh, plays. Uh, is there as a non-resource stock if you had to bet the ranch? Non-resource ones at the moment. Um, Angling, whatever it's called, that that fishing fishing tackle shop. They, I wouldn't say they're cheap at the moment. Angling Direct, I think they'll actually turn out. I think they'll do quite well. They're going to the way if they manage to um, replicate the model they've sort of achieved in the UK. They've pretty much taken over the UK market. Um, and they're now moving into Europe, and they're getting quite big in sort of Holland, Germany. Um, so I mean, if they if they can keep growing at the rate they're growing, they do a, it does have potential. Um, I mean, angling is to no offence, you Gary. I'm no. sure there are a lot of very trendy young people in angling, but um, uh, the local fishing club on our river up here, uh, they're all in their eighties, isn't it? Uh, isn't it an old man sport? It's dying out. There is a lack of youngsters coming through to some extent, definitely, yeah. Um, certainly in the UK. I mean, it's, it's very different. I mean, you go to America and it's still, yeah, still loads of kids go. And the same in Europe, actually. It's very much sort of family thing in, in Europe. It's just the UK market that seems to be sort of declining more than some of the others. Isn't that, isn't that bad news for Angling Direct? Um, 
I think they'll still do well out of it. I mean, um, the biggest markets at the moment sort of car pangolin market, which has been growing. Um, I mean, the company I work for, that's sort of the area we're involved with. Um, there's still, I mean, there's still plenty of money in angling, um, probably less so than there would have been in the past, um, or less anglers going, but they tend to be spending more money on, on their hobby than they would have done in past years. Right. Yeah. So, okay, so it's, is it Angling Direct, your uh, non-resource tip? I I, so I don't think they're not necessarily cheap at the moment. Um, just trying to think who else I would... Uh, I've not really looked at any others recently, to be honest, outside of... Yeah, um, we've been away filming so much. Um, okay, I mean, we'll let you off the hook there if you can yeah. ask one question. Is the summer rains going to make uh, uh, the autumn fishing in my local river, which, as you know, is very local to me, that much worse? Um, shouldn't, it shouldn't do. No, it's actually quite good. I mean, yeah, when it gives the river a flush through, um, you've got all the sort of crap on the banks, basically, that's accumulated there over the summer. Um, the first time it rains, fishing is normally terrible. Um, after that, once it's washed through all sort of sediment um, and rubbish, it's, it's normally quite good. There you are. Stock tips, tips on fishing. What more can you ask for? <laughs> Gary, thank you very much for your time. Uh, we'll talk again very soon. Great. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, good night. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Gary Newman. He is someone who takes a very sensible approach to investing. That's why I'm delighted to have him as one of my colleagues of very talented writers on the Share Profits website. I think one of the core messages that should come through from there is the way to make money from shares is to avoid the losers. Gary has a lot of filters, uh, which is based on both his learning as an understanding as a student of economics, uh, but also uh, on his years of experience in the market, first-hand experience. He is an investor uh, as well as a writer. When I started in journalism, most financial journalists also owned shares. Actually, in those bad old days, uh, some of the ethics of some of those journalists weren't so good. They did engage in pump and dump, and that culminated in the City Slickers scandal at the Daily Mirror during the dot-com boom, when two very naughty boys were tipping shares, which they had bought in illiquid companies, and as their gullible readers bought in the next morning, they would sell for quick profits. Yes, the dot-com boom was so frenzied that even the Daily Mirror, edited by Piers Morgan, who also traded in shares in a very fortuitous mash, uh, manner, uh, uh, even the Daily Mirror, edited by Piers Moron, was able to move markets. Things have changed in the world of journalism now. Uh, people don't engage in pump and dump. They are bound by very strict rules and actually they keep to them. Journalists have many other failings like being useless, not prepared to investigate fraud, doing what they're told by PR people, etc. But they are fundamentally behaving in a more uh, honest manner with regard to ownership of shares. But I think it's actually the pendulum has swung completely the wrong way. 
journalists do not own shares. They're so terrified of tripping up on some uh, uh, problem or being seen to be conflicted, they don't invest in shares. And actually, that makes the quality of their writing that much worse. How on earth can you advise on someone on whether a stock is expensive or cheap if you have no idea of how the market works if you don't buy or sell shares yourself? Uh, all of the share profits writers uh, uh, own shares and they all buy and sell shares, but they abide by a strict code. If they recommend a stock, then they must uh, warn readers to sell before they themselves are allowed to sell. That is the right way. Part of the skill of Gary's writing is that he does actually buy and sell shares and he's learned from his mistakes as well as learning how to spot an opportunity. The, the message that came through for me from that is the way to make money from shares is just to avoid the losers. Uh, most stocks on AIM will lose you money. If you can avoid any exposure to those stocks, uh, then your job of making money just by picking from the winners is that much easier. Uh, it sounds very easy. Of course, it's not very easy. Uh, you meet a CEO who is incredibly persuasive uh, and he talks you into following a company which really isn't worth following. Uh, companies lie in RNSs, something Malcolm Stacey picked up and reflected on with some anger in the last edition of Share Profits Radio. I think that was with reference to Big Dish Ventures. So it's not easy, and uh, experience does help. One of the key features of Share Profits, of course, is my daily bearcast. If you've enjoyed uh, this edition of Share Profits Radio, you've enjoyed some of my politically incorrect jokes and some of my jokes, or you've enjoyed uh, some of the analysis and cut and comment, and you can't wait seven days for another edition of Share Profits Radio, well, why not join Share Profits? It costs $5.99 a month, which works out at around about 2p per article, uh, including those infamous Bearcast podcasts, of which there is one every single day of the week, including weekends. Uh, so it costs less than a large glass of wine in most uh, wine bars in southeast England these days, or indeed even up here in the grim north and in Wales. It's a bargain, and it will help you with the process of avoiding losers. Uh, we don't say we get it right all the time, but we get it right an awful lot of the time, and will help you in that process of dodging the losers, avoiding the frauds, avoiding those companies uh, which are guaranteed to lose you money. So go on, sign up to Share Profits, uh, just five ninety nine, uh, and I will be back with another uh, free podcast, Share Profits Radio, in seven days' time. I'll speak to you then. Man of